0: good morning how are you how's it going how is your daily spiritual practice going good that that came from less than 10% of the people we'll just have to keep doing this until you get it right okay thank you for being here I'm glad you're here Um, And welcome to those of you who are watching online, Um, I'm glad that we are able to do this and thanks for the generosity of everybody and particularly the crew back there that makes it possible for for us to do this. So um, let's begin in silence, do whatever you need to do to bring yourself here. is simply to be present, to be open. As I mentioned last week, Brooke Somersbury says, take three deep breaths. And may grace be in our heads and in our thinking. May grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. May grace be in our ears and in our hearing may grace be in our mouths and in our speaking may grace be in our hearts and in our understanding and may grace be at our ends and at our departing so i say the same thing every sunday and that is that um, these times are designed to contribute to our developing a deeper understanding of ourselves a deeper understanding of whatever we mean by the word god and a Deeper level of compassion for those we consider our brothers and sisters and the other, because in fact they are our brothers and sisters. And following the lead of uh, Jesus, no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are celebrated here. So, um, this is not my notes. And by the way, if you're not aware of this, um, a, a copy of the text that I'm using usually goes out on Tuesday morning. I, I try to follow it. Sometimes I don't. But you, will, you can see the difference if you get it and also either listen to the audio that Tim posts or the video that, that's usually up. So this is what I'm about to say. It's not my notes. This talk today is divided into two parts. And the first part is going to be almost like a graduate-level seminar. Uh, It's going to be academic. There are going to be a lot of books mentioned. I don't expect you to read them, but I would like you, as I will say later, to know about them. Um, And uh, it's my effort to contribute to religious literacy. That's the first part of the talk. Second part of the talk is going to be an adventure. Uh, Going into territory that most of you have never entered before Certainly not in a church setting. And you know, adventures can be exciting. They can be informative. They can be terrifying. But just hold tight and uh, we'll, get, we'll get through it. So um, last week, <clears throat> I uh, ended by saying that the end of theism does not mean the end of God. And I said then that my plan for today was to begin to address two of the biggest questions that come from this statement. Um, The first question, which we're going just to begin to deal with today, has to do with what good is prayer? And the second question has to do with, and we will begin to deal with that a little bit next Sunday, what about life after death? And um, though there is no way that we're going to exhaust this topic today, where I want to begin is by raising the question, what good is prayer if there is no God up there? So first I want to do some religious literacy. Last week I said that when I was in seminary, The most creative work being done in the field of theology was being done by German theologians, German biblical scholars. Now there's a lot of speculation about how Germany could produce the brightest and best of these Biblical theologians and biblical scholars, while at the same time, Germany was moving into what we call the Holocaust. But it's a fact that at the time, uh, the best work was being done by the Germans in theology and biblical work, and when I had to learn German to enter graduate school, I figured that. That language is so difficult to learn that just, you know, learning the language as a kid, you had to be pretty smart. Um, Now, the first one of these German scholars that I encountered, I encountered when I was just barely out of adolescence. And that German scholar was Paul Tillich. And I encountered Tillich in two books of sermons that were gifts to my father, who taught Sunday school in the Southern Baptist Church where he went. My father didn't read those books but I did, and uh, I'm very grateful that I did, and I've, read, I've re-read them over the years, and um, in one of those sermons is a collection of perhaps some of the most powerful words in English I've ever read. Um, I think two other paragraphs. Two other selections I would pick probably come from the writings of Thomas Merton in terms of their beauty and comprehensiveness. But these two paragraphs came from the writings of Paul Tillich. I've read them in here before, but there are some of you who have never heard them, and I would like for you to hear what Tillich wrote and see if you might be able to appreciate the impact and meaning that these words had on a post-adolescent boy growing up in a shame-based, guilt-ridden Southern Baptist church. Okay? These are the words. You are accepted. You are accepted by that which is greater than you and the name of which you do not know. Do not ask the name now. Perhaps you will find it later. Do not try to do anything now. Perhaps later you will do much. Do not seek for anything. Do not perform anything. Do not intend anything. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. If that happens to us, we experience grace. After such an experience, we may not be better than before, and we may not believe more than before, but everything is transformed. In that moment, grace conquers sin, and reconciliation bridges the gulf of estrangement. And nothing is demanded of this experience, no religious or moral or intellectual presupposition, nothing but acceptance. That's so beautiful. That was written, as I said, by Paul Tillich. Um, Tillich is the man. He was on the cover of Time magazine. Um, he wrote many, many, many books, but was most best known when I was in graduate school and entered seminary for his volumes of systematic theology. And um, it was a heady experience of me when I went to Harvard and sat in the classroom where Paul Tillich taught and took theology from Paul Tillich's successor. And that's why I'm so screwed up, probably. So, anyway. Tillich is the one who said, God is not a being. God is being itself. Got to let that sink in. When I entered the seminary, the theologian who was a real hot guy was another German by the name of Karl Barth. Uh, Bart became disillusioned with the liberalism of the 19th century, and he decided that he was going to return to um, reading the Bible in a new way, and particularly the, the New Testament and particularly the book of Romans. And uh, Karl Barth became known for contributing a phrase, the strange new world in the Bible to theology, and he was the person who was at the beginning of a movement that was called neo-orthodoxy, the new orthodoxy. And he was also so influential that he was on the cover of Time Magazine. Um, Mess myself up here, be patient. When uh, Bart came to the United States, well, it just doesn't want to stay there. When Bart came to the United States, um, he, in 1962 or so, I think that's when it was, Martin Marty at Church of at University of Chicago got Bart to come to Chicago to teach. And afterwards, he uh, went out for a beer with uh, students at the School of Theology. And some reporter asked him if he could sum up his theology in a few words. And Bart, according to the article, uh, took a sip of his beer and said, "Jesus loves me, this I know." That's what he said at that. Um, he, he, there's no way to to say uh, how influential this man was. Uh, what one of the things that impressed me is that his. Commentary on the book of Romans was based on sermons that he preached in the German-Swiss village where he lived. And he preached those sermons to prisoners uh, in in the prison. And they were not church sermons. Um, So he contributed that phrase, The Strange New World, in the Bible. He had a profound influence on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, about whom I'll say more in a moment. He had a profound influence on James Cohn, the African-American theologian who came up with the liberation theology notion in America and uh, uh, tapped into a lot of black power theology. He also influenced Rudolf Bultmann, whom I'll mention in a moment, Hans Kuhn, great Roman Catholic theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr, who wrote a lot about Christ and culture, Jacques Allou, who became known as the theologian of hope. And he also influenced novelists like Flattery O'Connor and John Updike. One of the people that he had a profound influence on was Stanley Arawas. Arawas, a Methodist, used to be at Duke, he's now in Scotland, was considered by many to be um, uh, the world's most influential living theologian. He was, he was given the title, Best Theologian, um, America's Best Theologian, by Time Magazine in 2001. And I remember when he came and spoke here at the invitation of the uh, Foundation for Contemporary Theology. And uh, Dr. Mangston, who is in the audience today, said that Harris was an equal opportunity offender. He didn't care who he offended with what he said and... Um, he he said a lot of things that were outrageous. If you want an afternoon of entertainment, go home and look up Stanley Auerweiss quotes and you will see uh, some of the things that he said that were outrageous. I quoted a list of his stuff in here a number of years ago and um, upset a few people by some of what he said, but you if you read them, you'll figure out exactly which quotes I said that I should not have maybe said here. Uh, one of the things that he said was, never think you need to protect God, because any time you think you need to protect God, you can be sure you are worshiping an idol. Of course, the very other uh, influential German theologian in my life was Rudolf Bultmann. And Bultmann is known as the man who wanted to, quote, demythologize the New Testament narrative about Jesus. Now, his use of the word myth to describe any aspect of the Jesus narrative just scared the bejabbers out of many people who held the Bible to be the true word of God and containing no myth whatsoever. And though this is not a quote from Bultmann, I think it is fair to say that what, if I could summarize his goal, what he wanted to do was to say to people, if you read the Jesus story, the good news that Jesus proclaimed by his words and deeds, don't reject that because you get hung up on a belief in a three-story universe or a literal heaven or a little literal hell. Reject it because the call to authentic existence is too great. That's what Bultmann was about. He wanted the starkness of the gospel really to register with people. And um, he he did that in a great way. And last week I said, um, because I was suffering from some delusion or, or not paying attention, I said that he started the quest for the historical Jesus, nothing could be further from the truth. He certainly contributed to it. So I I want to say a bit about the various quests for the historical Jesus that have been uh, conducted over the centuries because you need to know this material, Um, at least that it's it's out there and that people like me who stand and make talks like this are just not making stuff up whole cloth. Um, It needs to be part of your religious literacy information. So in the last two centuries, there has been a revolution in biblical studies. And today, those who are the most respected scholars of New Testament agree that none of the writers of the Gospels were eyewitnesses to Jesus. None of the writers were eyewitnesses to what Jesus said and did. They wrote anywhere from 40... To 70, maybe longer years after the death of Jesus. Now, a lot of us have trouble remembering what we had for breakfast yesterday, to say, nonetheless, to say well, what happened 40 to 70 years ago. And so the scholars tell us that these people were greatly influenced by oral tradition. That is, stories were in a fluid state, and they passed. If you've ever played telephone, you know, our gossip, it goes from one person to another to another, and you can barely recognize it when it gets to the end of the line. So these people who wrote the Gospels were doing what they were doing, not to report history, but because they had a goal that they wanted to accomplish. So, for example, whoever wrote Matthew was writing to Jewish people. And I'll use the illustration last week. Of how the temptations of Jesus were based on the challenges that the children of Israel faced in their 40 years sojourn in the desert so it's not that Matthew made that up he made it up you see it was not fiction but it was the way those people thought in doing writing and and thinking the way that Jews thought in that particular time Luke had a different goal in mind when he when that gospel was written. He was writing for a Gentile audience, so that's why his gospel is so different. And if you compare the birth narrative in Matthew and the birth narrative in Jesus, you can't get them to fit together in any possible way. We do smush them together at Christmas time, but that's just because it makes a nice and pretty story. So that's just the way that they were doing. In 1835, a man by the name of David Strauss, another German, wrote a book entitled The Life of Jesus Critically Examined. He is also the scholar who contributed the phrase, the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith, to the religious lexicon in another book that he published. And though Strauss is credited with what is now called the first quest for the historical Jesus, the actual foundation of this was laid in the 16th century by a guy named Erasmus. Erasmus decided to publish what he called an Accurate Greek New Testament by going back and comparing all of the manuscripts that he could find. This man, Erasmus, is is considered one of the most important scholars of the Renaissance. And likely most people have not heard of him. What Erasmus discovered was that when the monks who made handmade copies of the scripture made them, They copied some words wrong. They left some lines out. They inserted their own opinion in some places, all of which over a long period of time became considered sacred scripture. Now, how anyone knowing the history of scripture and its development can hold to the literal interpretation of the Bible is just absolutely beyond me but people do at any rate Strauss baking is basing his work on that of a Stra- of Erasmus is the first one who pointed out the nature of oral tradition pointed out the errors in Scripture the fluid nature of things how the early Christians both remolded and invented stories that they told about Jesus and uh, said this before, my New Testament professors said, Jesus told parables. Jesus' followers told parables about Jesus. They were just following his example in in doing that. So there is in every biblical scholar's mind a critical difference between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. And uh, what is known as the second quest for the historical Jesus was undertaken by this man, Albert Schweitzer, who is a polymath, was a polymath, if ever there was one. This man was a musician, a writer, a composer, a physician, a philosopher, a biblical scholar, a theologian. He was as I say, a polymath, and he wrote a book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. Another Swiss German, by the way, Um, and after doing all of his work, Schweitzer concluded that the Jesus of history could not be found. He said that the scholars who did the work of looking for Jesus were like people who were looking down a deep well. They saw their own reflection in the water below and called it Jesus. And I think there's a lot of merit to that uh, particular position. So after the discovery, the, the, the search of the historical Jesus went away after that. Until the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, 44 Forty-five, The Gospel of Thomas was discovered in 1944. It didn't really make it into scholarship until the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, I understand that there was a guy here who talked a lot about the Gospel of Thomas at one point. Um, um, so after that, there was another quest for the historical Jesus. Whether it should be called the third quest for the historical Jesus or not is up for grabs. Scholars in the Jesus Seminar uh, have figured prominently in this. They're not the only ones. Uh, there are a lot of scholars, biblical scholars, who are not part of the Jesus Seminar, uh, <clears throat> primarily because the qualifications for being in the Jesus Seminar are obviously sleek. You've got to be a scholar of, of renown in a tenured position somewhere, uh, and you have to have the money to go and do this because the Jesus Seminar doesn't pay anything for the people who are involved in its work. They do all that work voluntarily. So another scholar um, who is in North Carolina, I believe, his name is Bart Ehrman, um, <clears throat> Raised fundamentalist Christian studied the Bible because he wanted to know what was really in the Bible. And in the process of doing that, has become a non-believer, he he says. But he's an authority on Scripture. And he's written a number of books. Uh, Two of them, misquoting Jesus and Jesus Interrupted, are very easy to read books. And if you would ever want to know Uh, more about the kind of thing that I'm talking about today, these would be two of the books that uh, I would recommend. He's very readable. He's a likable guy, very, very smart, Um, and and I like him a lot. He's got some uh, courses on the Jesus of history, Um, and he's just a man that I think deserves to be listened to. So it's offensive to some who call themselves Christian to hear that there are words attributed to Jesus in the New Testament that Jesus never said. We can at some point get into how scholars know that if it's something you're interested in, but I will just make it now as a statement. I remember when I was a child being given a bible we give student uh, kids here in church a bible in third grade and i think i still have that bible um, i was so impressed with the fact that you know it has really paper-thin pages you know that kind of bible and when in the new testament the words of jesus are in red and If you really want to know what Jesus said, you just turn to the red section and you can get it. But it puzzled me that nothing Jesus did was in red. And I thought that some of the things he did were more important than things that he said. So that never made any sense to me at all. But the fact is that just as archaeologists today have more and better tools and methods for reconstructing the past, So do those who work with words. So do those who work with ancient manuscripts. So do those who study religion. And there are much better methods for being a biblical detective now than there were when I was in seminary. Uh, Using what we know about archaeology and that evidence. uh, The leading scholar in this area is a man by the name of John Dominic Crossan, who is also spoken here. He's actually preached. In our church and John Dominic Crossan wrote a book called excavating Jesus beneath the stones and behind the text and I cannot conclude this foray into religious literacy without citing my very favorite John Dominic Crossan quote where he said my point once again is not that those ancient people told literal stories and now we're smart enough to take them symbolically, but they told them symbolically and we're now dumb enough to take them literally. (laughs) I don't expect you to read all these books, but I do want you to know about them. Every single person I have mentioned today has been a teacher of mine in one form or another. And it's my privilege now to be a teacher to you and to pass this information on to you and to introduce you to other people like Iliadelio and other people who've come here to help us understand our spiritual journey much better. They pointed to stories and sources that they've used, and I've used their conclusions. And uh, so I am to you today in this setting what they were. And, And the people that I mentioned today are just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many scholars and so much material out there. There are so many great minds, past and present, who can aid us in the essential work of deconstructing the religious beliefs we were handed and then In our own lives and times, reconstructing a faith that is not only more believable, but more importantly, more useful and wiser. Okay, that's the end of that. You can take a breath. Moving beyond theism does not mean moving beyond God. So what is prayer? And the answer to that question is shaped entirely by how you answer the question, who is God? Now, if God is an external reality, and by external, I mean up there, out there, somewhere, not here. And by reality, I mean something that exists, like a tree or a rock. If God is neither of those things but rather a living, loving presence right here, right now. If you see God is up there, out there, then prayer is always experienced as a request to this, away from us, God, to act in our lives in some way or another. Please come. A new understanding of whatever we mean when we use the word God means that we develop a new understanding of prayer. And one reason I spent the time talking about scholarship that's gone on to the various quests for historical Jesus today because the clearer, at least, I believe, for, thus, for those of us who call ourselves Christian the clearer we can be in our understanding of who Jesus was historically, and the more faithfully we can then develop beliefs and behaviors that are required to be his followers. Now, when I first began talking about this information, and my records show that I did this in 2003, right after 9-11, my teaching caused people to be uh, upset about a a variety of things. Um, I think the first thing I said that got a huge pushback and uproar was, Jesus did not die for your sins. Um, That is the most successful piece of bad theology that has ever been written. It's very late historically in development. And nothing Jesus ever said or did contributes to that erroneous belief. It's violation of the Jewish faith that he believed in and represented and wanted to reform. And besides, it's very selfish. It's all focused on the individual. Individual soul salvation is the tradition I grew up in. You've got to save souls for Jesus. And it denigrates the community which is what Jesus was interested in, the kingdom of God, not the individual of God. Still, this belief is a test of Christian fundamentalism to this day. Second came the questions about prayer. If there's no God up there, out there, if God doesn't intervene in human affairs, why pray? And then the third question is, what do you think happens to us when we die? I said to Sherry yesterday that, you know, when I am gone, somebody's going to have to cancel all the streaming stuff that we got on TV. And nobody knows my passwords. (laughs) It's going to be complicated. So I want to begin talking about prayer today. And again, I want to stress, we're just scratching the surface. So uh, the fact remains that Whenever God is defined in some other way as a supernatural being who's standing by up there just waiting to get our call and to see if he, it's always a he, might respond. If it's not that, then for most people prayer loses its meaning. And maybe the way we understand God is not really tested until we understand prayer and try to pray. And... Um, I, a number of years ago, I did this, I, I did a series, I don't remember when, on the Lord's Prayer, which Jesus didn't say, by the way. We'll get to that, but it's another a whole other ball game. <laughs> it's a good prayer, and it's one that I think we can explore. And so I made a commitment to myself that in a few weeks, I want to do a series on what we know as, as, as the Lord's Prayer, if you're, if you're open to that. Uh, we use it in our liturgy every week, and I think it would be helpful. You know, there are some biblical scholars who like to go through the Bible and count how many times a particular word is used about something. They use a book called The Concordance for this. And uh, I just think you might find it interesting. The word pray is used in the entire Bible 59 times, only 59 times. The word prayer is used in the entirety of the Bible as a noun only 34 times. In the Gospel of John, the word pray or prayer is not mentioned at all. Just to give you a little idea. Because you would think the way that we think about prayer, it's on every other page. Uh, Now, I want to tell you by personal experience... That questions asked by fundamentalists are traps. And uh, over the years, I have fallen into many of them. Um, Some of you have told me that when you try to invite some of your friends to come to this gathering, and they're of the more conservative nature, they will ask, does he believe in the Bible? Or does he believe in Jesus? How do you even begin to answer questions like that? So I want to ask you, just to play along with me for a minute. If someone comes up to me and I, they ask me, do you believe in prayer? And I say, yes. What do you think they think I mean by that answer? <laughs> hmm? Seriously. And if they come up to me and ask me, do you believe in prayer, and I say no, what do you think they think I mean by that answer? What does that convey? Since I don't believe that God is like Santa Claus, I don't ask God to bring me things. I certainly don't try to convince God that I've been good enough to deserve God's attention. This God, by the way, again, is always male. And yet, that is exactly the way many people understand prayer. Our prayers seem to assume that God might not do good unless we ask. God might not be merciful unless we plead. Our prayers also, at least, prayers usually thought of, seem to assume that we can change God's mind. Right. I think one of the the most important things I ever heard Richard Rohr say early on in my involvement with him was that Jesus did not come to change God's mind about us. Jesus came to change our minds about God. There are some people, even groups of people, who define themselves as prayer warriors, assuming that they or their prayers have such power. Now, for people like this that I've just named, and I don't mean to to caricature them, but for people like this, when you say there is no theistic God, it's terrifying for them. So I want to quickly add... Prayer for me is a major part of my daily spiritual practice. Yes, Jesus does teach, ask, and you shall receive. But we'll have to get more completely into what exactly that means later. And there are other questions that we'll have to wait as well. I just want you to be aware that I I am aware of them. So if God has the power to intervene in history, Why doesn't God do it more? If God has the power to cure sickness, to relieve pain, to help people escape danger, to bring war and its suffering to an end, why doesn't God do this? If God has the power to intervene and does not do so, what kind of God is this? As Shelby Spong says somewhere, and I couldn't find the source, what is the shelf life of an impotent and malevolent God? So back to the claim that the end of theism isn't the end of God. And I want to return to that affirmation that moving beyond theism doesn't mean moving beyond God. And I would like to encourage you between now and next Sunday when we gather here to come up, with as many different words for God as you can think of. I have used words like grace, sacred mystery, being, the holy other, the ground of being, that you come up with words that you would use. John A.T. Robinson, in a bombshell of a book that came out in the 60s when I was just entering uh, the ministry here in Houston at at Covenant, came out with a book called Honest to God. A great book. Um, And in that book, John A.T. Robinson said that we should go a whole generation without using the word God. Now, I try to do that, but I'm not successful. And the reason I try to do that is that the, the word God for most people, means up away from, not here. And what's Jesus to us? Here, God, present, Emmanuel, with us. People experience God in Jesus. It's the core of the Christian faith that we experience God in and through the life and teaching of Jesus. Here, not there. So, try to think of those words. It's clear when you read the narratives that we have about the, the life of Jesus that Jesus didn't care, seem to care what people believed. He cared what people did. He cared how people were treated. Um, and it's also clear that Jesus taught that the only answers to the challenges in our world were us. Goodness comes into the world through how we live our lives, through our voices, through our actions. And again, I want to say, I know that the notion of there not being God up there is disturbing to many. One of the many German theologians I didn't mention because we're going to spend time on him later uh, is a man that you all have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer he's probably the best known popularly of the german theologians a play was written about him his letters and papers from prison very popular book his book cost of discipleship is a very popular book and um, he popularized the notion of religion less christianity And he came up with a phrase of learning to live before God without God. Now, Bonhoeffer was executed by the Nazis because of his involvement to overthrow Hitler. So you could say he really put his words into action about that. So, living before God... Without God, I can claim that for me, prayer is a very, very important component of my spiritual practice. And I don't believe that there is an external theistic being out there mulling over what I say, deciding whether or not to respond to me. Following the teachings of the mystic, And knowing that my true self, according to Thomas Merton, is knowing God, in praying, I'm listening to and for myself, my true self. Sorting out what is happening in my life and the life of the world, honoring the beauty I have encountered, expressing the gratitude and awe I feel, venting the rage and frustration about the gone wrongness of the world, and asking how can I make a difference. So that when I'm praying, I'm sitting with the reality of my life in this context, exploring what it means to follow Jesus now. I can affirm the paradox that God is love and loves every person and yet there is no external God who's going to step in and protect you. You just think now of the people in Turkey and Syria who are experiencing the aftermath of the most massive earthquake we've had in modern history. Where was God? Think of the victims of military and economic violence in Haiti, the children in Ukraine. It goes on and on. And somebody said to me, yes, but Jesus said not a sparrow falls to the ground unless God knows it. And God knows the number of hairs on your head. True, but that doesn't keep the sparrow from falling or my hair from falling out. Right. So Christian liturgy is built around four broad categories that we use every Sunday. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and lament. And these are the things that constitute the content of my prayer. I am in awe that there is anything, especially our ability to be conscious. It is a miracle that this is happening. That's adoration. I reflect on how I have vowed to love my wife and fail at that. How I contribute to the misuse of our planet and its resources. How I neglect reaching out to people I say I care about. That's confession. How fortunate I am, I am not in the remnants of an earthquake, a military invasion, economic impoverishment, and the like. That's Thanksgiving. And how there are people I love and care for who are suffering and scared or near the end of life, or a loved one of theirs is, And that's supplication. I pray every day. I don't pray for parking spots. I don't pray for God to intervene in ways I know that God will never intervene. And yet I do see life as miraculous and I seek to participate in it. Things that happen that are beyond my understanding. Carl Jung called them synchronicity. My teacher um, called them golden threads that are woven through the fabric of life that you can look back and see had it not been for this and this and this and this and this, I wouldn't be here. And I call those providential. Now, it's my personal belief, and you're going to have to form your own, that acknowledging each one of these aspects of our lives on a regular basis contributes to our spiritual well-being. And, and by the way, there are a multitude of ways these things find expression. It's not it's just bow our heads and close our eyes. They take expression in journaling, in dance, in poetry, in walks in nature, in drumming, in sexual encounters, and all sorts of ways. That's not my notes either. Painting, developing mindfulness. Find what works for you. But don't cut yourself off from practicing the presence of God simply because there's no God out there. God, God is as close as your next breath. And without that next breath, you're going to be really close to God. <laughs> right? Right? So, I want to end this time today, not the discussion of either God or prayer, because there's so much work more work to do here, by making two observations, and then um, I want to offer a prayer um, that you've heard before, but you might hear it differently in light of what we've talked about today. Now, my first observation, and it's not something I can prove, but I have a hunch about, And that is that people who are the most upset about there not being an external theistic God up there who answers our specific calls for him to intervene in our behalf are likely people who do not pray unless and until they are in trouble. So when they think about God, oh, now I'm in hell. They don't nurture a relationship. I can't prove that, just a judgmental assumption of mine. A second observation has to do with people who do pray or people who do have some rather enforced or habitual daily spiritual practice. The fastest growing tribal religion worldwide is Islam. The word Islam means to obey or to be submissive. Now, the Muslims definitely believe in an the external theistic God. It's one of the elements of their religion is to pray five times a day if you've ever spent any time in a turkish country and there are places in houston where you can go and experience this muslims pray five times a day and if you're in a turkish country the loudspeakers blare from the top of the minarets of their worship places and people stop what they're doing and they pray it would not hurt you to. pray five times a day. That's my point. Okay? So we get all upset about prayer when we really maybe don't have regular prayer practice. The other example among faithful prayer people are the Buddhists. Practicing Buddhists who have no belief in an external theistic God, but in a place like Plum Village in France where Thich Nhat Hanh retreated after being exiled from Vietnam, every hour of the day a gong is rung and people stop what they are doing for five minutes to be mindful. It wouldn't hurt. You got these devices on your arm that will alert you. My point is that sadly people who are the most upset about a change in the understanding of prayer are more likely people who don't pray, except when they are in a crisis. Now, as for prayers that fall in the circle of prayers that I mentioned today, there are a multitude um, we had a man here who talked who wrote a book about prayer and um, you can see the thing that he did on the youtube in when when we had him here um, The Lord's Prayer is a good example. The 23rd Psalm can be used as an example of that from the Hebrew and and Christian tradition. And there are many others um, that that are in that. But I want to close by reading to you a prayer that I have closed my own first part of my the first effort at my spiritual practice every day, which I do, And I don't say this arrogantly, but I'm not going to do something I don't ask you to to do something I don't do. So I do have a daily spiritual practice, and I've ended it this. uh, I include the Thomas Merton prayer that some of you know. I say that, read that over every day, have that memorized. But the one that I currently end my spiritual practice with, reciting every day, is the one that we know is uh, St. Francis' prayer. By the way, St. Francis did not write this. Even the Franciscans say that. It's too ego-self-oriented to be the kind of thing that St. Francis would have done. But it is nonetheless a wonderful prayer. And it goes, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me so love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that us may not seek so much to be consoled as to consoled, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to be loving. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in self-forgetting that we are found, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born into eternal life. No matter where you go this week no matter what happens remember this you carry precious cargo so watch your step see you here next week thank you